hello and welcome to Radio Moorpark, probably. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm Callum Cairns and with me is the uh, the Granny Weatherwax to my Nanny Og, the the Nobby to my Colon, the Two Flower to my Rincewind, Rose Fortune. Rose, how are you? Good, thank you. Okay. <laughs> really appreciate the introduction. Oh, you're very Granny welcome. Weatherwax. That's good. <laughs> Oh, I could have, I could have cherry picked a lot worse Discworld duos there. I think that's true. You know, we could have been we could have been Bruta and Vorbus. <laughs> Definitely you know, for Granny Weatherwax. Or uh, or or, or um, those two the two baddies in is it the, the truth or uh, is the truth like the bad guy the bad guys there's two blokes. Yes. Oh, I've forgotten their names. Mister Pin and Mister Tulip. That's them. Okay. Yeah. Um, and The Truth, incidentally, is one of the few Discord books I haven't read. And we'll be redressing that in this podcast, because in this podcast, we'll be working our way entirely through Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, a book at a time. We'll be discussing the book, uh, we'll be, you know, how we're struck by it on, a, on reread, or as it'll be in some cases with me on first time read. And uh, yeah, we just hope it'll be a fun experience for everyone listening. So I suppose the best place to start is... Rose, how did you first come across this world and when? I can't remember what age I was. I was definitely an early teenager. It must have been probably about 14, 15 kind of age. And what had happened was I'd basically read my way through most of the kids section and the teenage section. And so the librarian didn't actually want me taking out any adult books, but uh, I think she <laughs> sort of slipped her mind that she'd asked me for a permission slip one time. And then next okay. time I went back with a pile of adult books, she was like... Oh, now, when you, when you say adult books... I mean Terry Pratchett level reading okay. for grown-ups. Not books, not books that are in the Hodges Figgis adult literature section. <laughs> None of those. Okay. Um, I can see why she wouldn't want you taking those out. That's true. Also, I did have a bit of a thing for crime literature at the time, so there ah. were some grisly murders in there too. Yeah. But just that level of reading. And she'd give me the permission slip. And then the next time I went back, I hadn't gotten it signed. But she seemed to have just forgotten. She's like, I gave it slip already. Yeah. Grant. And she just gave me books. So I stumbled across Nightwatch in just... The cover looked brilliant. And <laughs> I was just sold by the cover. I just I was going through it, the entire alphabetical mm-hmm. bookshelves. There was no... It wasn't recommended to me. I hadn't heard of Terry Pratchett any other way. There wasn't a big sci-fi or fantasy collection in my library, but I just happened across Terry Pratchett's Nightwatch. And I fell in love with Terry Pratchett right away. Oh, wow. So I read Nightwatch. Then I went back for every other Pratchett book I could possibly find in the library. Then I hunted down every other Terry Pratchett book I could <laughs> possibly find anywhere else. Nightwatch is a, is a funny one because I, I kind of... I've been, I've been reading up in preparation for this and it sort of struck me... Uh, Nightwatch is one of my favourite Discworld books, but it sort of struck me uh, reading analysis of it that it sort of works really well because because you know the character so well by that point like particularly obviously Vimes being the most obvious but just Ang Morpork in general like I felt like all the uh, I, I don't want to get too much in that much because that'll be for way down the line and, and the podcast but it, it felt like you know it all seems designed to resound with the reader's knowledge of Ang Morpork and Vimes and the other characters from other novels so I, uh, I just find it interesting that you read that one with no knowledge of the rest of them and loved it anyway that's it, true. it speaks to the book. Yeah, I mean, I guess I did sort of jump in at the deep end of the series. It's mm-hmm. quite late. Everybody's very established. And upon rereading it, I'm going to appreciate it so much more. Yeah. But introducing Vimes at that point, you still love him. And Carcer is such a good villain. <laughs> Absolutely. Time travel, magic, 
<laughs> to the librarian. One of the funnier things I'd read was just the librarian. <laughs> just mm. saying ook and everybody being like, oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> or what did he say? Was it, was it a pleasant surprise or a disappointment to you when you eventually worked your way back to the life fantastic where you find out <laughs> that he wasn't an ape at one point? <laughs> I was amazed. That's the thing about Terry Pratchett, which is going to be brilliant rereading them all, is when you finally get a callback mm-hmm. that because I read them in way out of chronological order. Just any way I could find them, I read them, obviously. So read them way out of chronological order. And then when you get back to one of the first books and you get a callback. Yeah. And suddenly you realise where a character started or what they used to be. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. So, so when like when you when you first read the color of magic, cause color of magic is it's, it's you know we'll get to all this, but it's a weirdly place where it was written in 1983, and the fantastic wouldn't come out until 1986. Now, I'm unsure. I think I did read a, a talk by him where he alludes to how glacially slow the publishing process is for the fantastic. So I don't know whether he had written it much earlier and it came out. A little later, but in any case, it's it sort of stands out because he was so prolific. You know, once he hit a stride, and you would be getting two a year, you know, or at the very least one a year for like a, a decade or more. And that that three year gap is probably the biggest in the series. Mm-hmm. And you all uh, like a lot of long time Pratchett readers will tell people how oh don't don't start with the color magic. You know, it's completely different, and it is completely different as as we'll get into. But like when you when you first read that, like not on this reread, but when you first read it, did it stick out to you as like oh this is much different than all the Discworlds I've been reading about lately? Like I presume you uh, you didn't go straight from Nightwatch back to the Color of Magic, did you? Uh, yeah, no, no so, definitely not. So having read a few of them, then like having read the Color of Magic, did you like was it was it weird for you, Dan? Yeah, it was. It was definitely very different from most of his other books. Mm-hmm. But then I suppose because of the way he writes, you know, the witches here and the wizards there, and the guards there, it just never struck me as that unusual. Yeah, like it just seemed like it was a bit out of place. But at the same time, he does go off in so many different directions that it just seemed like another one of those. Mm-hmm. It never struck me as that strange. Mm-hmm. I I first got into Terry Pratchett when um, like years and years ago. I think my my dad got uh, got me and my brother like the audiobook of Truckers, and <laughs> uh, it's read by Tony Robinson of Baldrick and Blackadder fame and nice. Time Team, uh-huh. and he he reads uh, the abridged audiobooks of all the Discworld, and. Uh, I, I know there are some people out there who uh, just don't go in for audiobooks or mightn't have heard them, but I definitely recommend looking them up. It can kind of be a bit of a a bit of a wrench if you're really familiar with a certain book and you can notice the bits they're leaving out when they have to abridge it. But Tony Robinson just does all the voices so wonderfully well. But yeah, so we got really into Truckers and then we got like Diggers and Wings and it's all on audio. And I can't remember, I think we might have got the Johnny Maxwell books before... Discworld. Mm-hmm. So then we just came to Discworld through that. It was just like, oh, it's it's that Terry Pratchett guy. Like probably I don't even think it was me or my brother. It's put it mean like my dad seeing it in the library and being like, oh, this is an author you like. Um, and weirdly, it was the Life Fantastic was the first one we heard, <laughs> not the Color of Magic. And it, it's just so bizarre because I mean, most of them. I, I alluded earlier how with you reading Nightwatch that I felt like Nightwatch is one that relies a lot on your knowledge of previous books but I more meant that in terms of how it emotionally resounds I think like plot wise it's standalone yeah. and plot wise all of them are standalone <laughs> with the one exception of Delight Fantastic <laughs> and yeah we weren't bothered at all we were just like oh it's this like wonderful world full of you know like wizards and kind of like 
like computer computer hacker druids and yeah. like all you know like things here the dungeon dimensions and all that and then sort of you know kind of put two and two together and i think we got the color of magic and audiobook at some point it was like oh yeah yeah this is <laughs> this is what they meant there and you know yeah. that this is why they're in a ship at the start of the life fantastic <laughs> um yeah and, and i kind of cherry picked them from then like i feel like like it was a while before i, I graduated from audiobooks to reading them and then thereafter i would just like read them uh and, and we were talking before we before we went on about the uh, the old josh kirby covers and i think they were a big like they didn't as i said they didn't attract me to this world in the first place or passion but when i got into it i feel like they were a big factor in which one i would read next like when i would you know a rare occasion i'd have disposable income as a kid and go into a shop mm. and want to buy one it would be like like the wonderful like blue and yellow of the big harvest moon and the night sky and reaper man or the, the sea greens of jingo like that was the kind of stuff that you know made me pick them above you know above, uh i suppose you know whatever a row of 20 other um pratchett ones that all also had really good covers but these were the covers that specifically stuck out to me yeah um yeah so because the life fantastic was the first one i heard and i i feel like i heard the color of magic shortly thereafter uh, it didn't really stick out. It was really weird. It was only kind of later, when I, you know, I got really into Pratchett that I realised what sort of outliers they were. Yeah. Um, and I suppose as well, like what a, like a a marginal figure Rincewind and is more so Two Flower becomes as the the series goes on. Where like just for a while I was like he was the protagonist of the Discworld, and you know, even <laughs> if I'm reading a, a a witch's book or a, a, a City Watch book, you know, it's like, like but Rincewind's the main one, you know. Um, <laughs> You're waiting for him to appear and all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember. I, I remember being absolutely thrilled when he showed up in Mort. Like you know, like even though I knew it was a cameo, I knew he wasn't going to pop in and become a, you know, a big character in it. But um, just being like, oh, it seemed mind blowing to me. You know that he he pulled this character out. It was like uh, I feel it was a very simple joy at sort of innovation and an artist cross-referencing themselves that I got when I first heard All You Need Is Love by the Beatles and they start singing She Loves You at the end. And the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, God, they're getting a song and stick it into another song, you know? I felt like that one Rincewind showed up in Mort. Um, and I still held out hope that he'd, he'd get a big finale book before the end where, you know, Rincewind would lead to charge reluctantly of the good guys against some massive threat. But uh, yeah. that probably wouldn't have worked. No, um, you no. wanted a blackadder scenario. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, right, so let's 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 get into tackling this book. Um, not physically, of course. No, it's very small, uh, and would be we might break something. Um, but uh, yeah, one thing that jumped out to me immediately is the very very first line of the prologue is um I'm gonna hear in a distant and second hand set of dimensions. <laughs> and like the Discworld is not all about but a huge part of it and particularly the early Discworld is parodies and references and um you know kind of I suppose Pratchett doing his own version of something like here he's sending up sword and sorcery and you know in Weird Sisters it like he'll be tipping his hat at Shakespeare uh, an awful lot you know and kind of in, in pyramids it's more like a culture and concept and you've got that sort of thing and yeah like um it feels like reading this like that you know he didn't know he certainly didn't know he'd be writing like over two dozen or whatever is 40 more of these books yeah. after you know he didn't know he'd be getting that much mileage out of this world it definitely feels like so, like he'd already written I think Strata and the Carpet People and neither of them had done particularly well mm-hmm. so 
Like he wasn't a career writer at this point, so he's very much writing for the joy of it. But yet, with that one line, it's sort of like it ultimately acts as an acknowledgement of this is the world you're in. This is this world is all about you know taking uh, referencing other things and tipping their cap at you know tipping his cap at other things and just his own take on a lot of a lot of other people's concepts. Um, just in the very first line, and um. George R. R. Martin of uh, I, I think I give an extra R in there, um, <laughs> but the George Martin who didn't produce the Beatles, the writer one right. uh, of a song of ice and fire fame, has a great analogy. I don't know if he came up with it, but he's the one I heard it from about writers, and I think it works for just creatives and artists in general mm-hmm. being divided into like two types of architects and gardeners, and <laughs> okay, uh, and architects plan everything out, you know, and they have. Uh, have it, like it all planned out there plot wise and character wise and where it'll go yeah. and they, you know they, they built their scaffolding and then they built stuff around it and gardeners plant a seed and just see how it grows and they don't really know how it's uh, you know how it's going to grow and he sort of conceded that you know no one is entirely one thing or another you don't have a, a writer that's a pure architect or a pure gardener mm-hmm. I think Pratchett is very much a gardener because there's there's like a, a lot of stuff uh in this that will you know kind of runs contrary to the disc world you see elsewhere so it's clear you know he didn't have it in mind and and as it goes on as well like you know there's a lot of contradictions and a lot of like you know books where he's plainly kind of making it up where he goes along uh, as he goes along in a sense of you know uh, like oh I'll introduce this new concept that's never been mentioned in the disc world before but you know I'll, I'll just say it was there the whole time and he does it so well it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. um, but I just think it's fascinating that in this there's just a uh, there's so many things that are just thrown in. Um, as I said, that he might have been planning, might have never been planning on revisiting, but that later turn out to be, you know, much bigger and play much bigger roles in the series as they go on. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to sell concepts of uh, Ankh Morpork and the Patrician, and then you have like um, uh, the barbarian heroes who later return to in interesting oh, yeah. times, mm-hmm. and the last hero, and like the gods playing dice he'll reference again and um yeah there's there's so much stuff that's just like touched on here that will become much bigger even the the short description he gives of the um the watch in the first bit being like uh attracting a kind of a thoughtful quiet sort of man like they don't you you know they they go in have a look at the fight Mm -hmm. and don't really want to get involved too much like turns into a whole book in guards guards right and kind of becomes a whole series and the the city watch books of how the watch evolves. Um, yeah, like was there anything else you noticed there that you know it's just a, it's a small throwaway thing within the color of magic, but it will later become a much bigger part of this world. I thought it was funny. <laughs> I was keeping an eye out for this because I I think we discussed before, or I had discussed with somebody else before, or we've all had it, whether the patrician is veterinary all along, oh, yeah. or whether he's a different patrician. The patrician in this mentioned as having several chins. At mm-hmm. some stage, he moves his chins, and I just went, "That's not veterinary. Veterinary doesn't have chins. Veterinary barely has one chin." Yes. So, <laughs> I'm looking forward to see if that's ever acknowledged. Whether there's a, whether I'm just forgetting that there's a veterinary entry point mm-hmm. somewhere, or whether this is they've introduced a patrician, and they're just going to pretend it's the same one all along. But well, I think I think he claims that his words were along the lines of. It's the same guy, but written by a worse writer. Um, <laughs> oh. And apparently, apparently, there's some fan fiction uh, 
sort of trying to reconcile this and explain why. Oh, really? And um, I, I, I can't remember. I, I think the gist of it is something like it's veterinary taking on the persona of someone much more decadent because he knows he like if uh, if he is immediately as uh, a, a, immediately appears as efficient and as clever as he is, he will be a big target for assassination. Like that, Ang Park has kind of gotten used to these sort of uh, decadent, easily manipulated, corrupt patricians. So he appears like that at first, and then I think there's a reference way, way down the line about how, um, like in a, in a later book, about how the Assassins Guild have stopped taking prices on him because they feel he's too vital to the running of the city. And I suppose the idea within this fan fiction is that, like, he's basically this is his cover until he becomes too vital to the running of the city. Then he can drop the charade, but knows they won't kill him because, like, he's he's proved he's indispensable. Um, that makes a certain which, amount of sense. Yeah, 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 it does. I, I, I don't know, but I think um, I think Thief of Time is just all about, like, is sort of coyly all about addressing all these little uh, continuity, kind of self-made continuity errors that come along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're, we're way down the line from that. Um, the other thing that cut me with that opening is that, uh, like, and, and I feel like it's probably a thing a lot of people have noticed, but I, I only am really conscious when I was looking out for it, that Pratchett has these very cinematic, like, zoom openings where his stories begin really, really way, way, way up, and oh, then he yeah. zooms down to the particular. And in this case, it's, like, very physical. It's like he's literally, he's giving you the view of the world on the turtle and explaining all of that, and then you zoom into a particular part of it, Hank Moorpark. But in later ones, it's more conceptual, like, he will open... Uh, which is abroad by just talking about stories in general and then he zooms into a story about stories and he opens Hogfather by talking about like myth and belief and then he zooms into a story about myth and belief but um, yeah it's something I never noticed before that tendency for him just to uh, begin wide and hone in yeah Uh, I think I appreciate it more now I think mm -hmm. probably when I was younger I would have sort of skipped the prologues a little bit just to get to the characters and the action whereas now I really appreciate how well written they are yeah this one's an odd one for being a just sort of directly to the reader as in just every now and then he goes see and look look at this and normally it seems to be more of an overarching just you know description whereas this is look at this Mm -hmm. look at this turtle look at this elephant it's like he's actually addressing the reader yeah yeah um yeah i feel like he's he's sort of uh He's kind of conversational throughout it, but uh, all looks. But I feel like it's only at the, those big starting wide bits that he talks. You know, he he talks to the reader, mm-hmm. and then it's like kind of almost once you've zoomed into the story, the narrator is too close up at it to to see the reader, or at least to turn and and address the reader. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Um. Also, another reason why this I suppose stands out in contrast to the later ones is that it. Uh, it's divided up into like basically chapters or more like books. Yeah, I was two surprised. of them are prologues and two of them don't. <laughs> um, and they're almost they're almost like standalone books because I mean none of them really like you know follow on. And in in at least two of them, maybe more, he almost reintroduces like elements that you know. You know, I I think I read this re- reread it for for this uh, podcast over the course of a few days. Mm-hmm. So it was really weird that you know I, I finish. Um, you know, the color of magic that the book within the book, the color of magic, and onto the sending of eight. And then he would be talking again about Rincewind getting the spell in his head and Tuflora being a tourist. And I feel like, oh, well, I know that. I, I read that yesterday or the day before. But it's almost written like they're um, Serials. serialized. Yeah. Uh, and I did hear there's there's a chap um, who blogs under the name Vacuous Wastrel. And he does a Discworld, uh, re- a really good Discworld reread. 
and he sort of speculated in it. He he noticed that and then thought, oh, is this meant to be like a deliberate send up of how a lot of sword and sorcery uh, like books would be essentially a bunch of novellas stitched together? Um, I don't know if it is or not, or I don't know if this is just the way he wrote it because, as we said, he wasn't really like writing for a living at this point. You know, like he may have just written the the first bit and then like kind of added on the next bit out of whim or. Um, but it's it's certainly it's 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 funny that way. The other that same guy brings up at the uh, the sword and sorcery um, parody of it that sword and sorcery as a as a genre or a subgenre of fantasy mm. is kind of if not quite extinct and really on the wane now. You know, like oh, yeah. yeah, it isn't uh, the the ones that stick up for me that I remember reading like somewhat modern with like David Gemmell. I feel like. Uh, like his stuff, sword and sorcery. Yeah, although like, more I can't, sword than sorcery. Yeah, and I, I can't tell offhand when they were written. Like I remember reading them when I was in my mid-teens or something, but yeah. I feel like they could be ten years older. Certainly, there's not a whole lot of it being churned out now, and um, yeah, it make, makes for a kind of interesting read because obviously when this came out, he was parodying something a lot of people would have recognised, yeah. and that's less of the case now. Uh, and and this this vacuous wastrel fellow um, thought, and I kind of agreed, is that it sort of it, it makes it kind of enjoyable. It's like a two for one deal. Like you are being introduced <laughs> to the sword and sorcery genre, and then you're also laughing like and uh, at the parody of the sword and sorcery genre. And it certainly has the effect that afterwards I was like, oh, I know, you know, uh, the first bit's really meant to be really like Fritz Leiber. And I was thinking, or Lieber perhaps. I was like, oh, I've never read any of him. I know I really want to after reading Color of Magic. Uh, you know, and the same with the uh, the Dragon Riders of Perrin bit um, and the, the Werenberg. Yeah. Like, you know, I knew reading it just from what I'd read. Oh, this is a parody of, of Dragon Riders of Perrin, which I'd never read. And I was like, oh, I'd kind of like to give one of those a read now that I've, I've read someone taking the piss out of it you know, in a really fun way. Yeah, that's really funny because I I, I got that it was obviously a piss take of all of these uh, sword and sorcery mm-hmm. type books and films and all of that genre. I never realized how specific it was. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna to have to look those up as well. Yeah, um, and like uh, the what's Belshazzar is very H.P. Lovecraft esque. Oh yeah, that's but true. his his setting is much more sword and sorcery. Or like you know, uh, if if you want to do a full H.P. Lovecraft kind of, uh, I know Rincewind, which has become a wasp who's racist against two flower <laughs> and like hates living in the big city or something because of all the, the multiculturalism there. Yeah. Um, if we if we develop any kind of a listenership for this now that there's some mm-hmm. rabid Lovecraft fans will hate me for that I loved a guy <laughs> but he was a racist um, but and I, yeah, I was thinking with regard to that that because in this case that the sort of the subject of his parody has, has aged uh, and as as the discord goes on like the very early stuff like uh, particularly the early rooms and stuff mm-hmm. is he's satirizing certain elements of fantasy and then as it goes on, he's more kind of satirizing or exploring elements in real life, you know, like from really big concepts like, you know, myth, religion, law, to very specific, you know, very specific things um, like films and yeah. rock music <laughs> and um, football in Unseen Academicals. Yeah. And I was thinking, can you think of like, I suppose any, any uh, just, just for later on, but I, can you think of any other... Um, like subjects of of parody or subjects of of like um, exploration later in the disc world that might sort of age badly in the sense of that like what he was writing about then won't really exist in modern times anymore in the same way that sword and sorcery as a genre has declined. Well, that's interesting. Um, 
I suppose um, moving pictures mm-hmm. is probably going to age not so well because I mean the star system has changed so much I mean yeah. this whole joke of oh I come from a small town you've probably never heard of it mm-hmm. that's such a, a 50s thing a pin up thing yeah yeah and I still get that but people won't always because Hollywood has changed to such an entirely different system people will get some of the references but not all of them mm. although I feel with moving pictures and it's been a while since I read it mm. like he's even like he, he would be writing it in like the very early 90s and he's kind of depicting Hollywood in the 20s and 30s. So even at the time, he was sort of, you know, jumping back with that and just sort of echoing this golden age of Hollywood stuff. I don't know whether, I know whether time goes on, people would be more or less conscious of it. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I just found it interesting because obviously in this case, I thought the the fact that the, the, uh, the basically the thing he's kind of parodying in the book as, um, and when I say that, I don't mean to make it that all of the books are just like parodies on one particular topic or another. No, but as I said, that like secondhand set of dimensions, like he definitely does kind of like, I suppose, choose a topic to riff on or a couple of topics. And I was just wondering whether there are any of them that like have the, that same risk of, um, of aging. Um, yeah, I wonder how deliberate that secondhand set of dimensions phrase is or whether it's just imbued with this fantastic meaning after there being so many books mm-hmm. that it just could be such a great throwaway phrase to begin with. But given the legacy now of so many Discworld novels, that it's just so apt all of a sudden. Yeah, he yeah. might never have intended it. Yeah. Well, I think I think even he, I, I doubt he did intend it. Mm. But uh, but I think even even as a standalone thing, it works wonderfully well. It's like right from the bat, it's sort of um, it's uh, it's what's satirical and self-deprecating. Like it's you know taking the piss out of the world he's creating. <laughs> like he's at once presenting you with this like magnificent like mind-boggling image of this turtle going through space carrying a you know, a, a disc-shaped planet on its back, but also sort of taking a piss out of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, that just still feels really refreshing, you know, from kind of, uh, I suppose, sitting between between extremes of either, you know, uh, fantasy or any kind of work that gets really po-faced and really grandiose, and then the other end of extreme stuff that's uh, sort of way too self-deprecating and flippant and, you know, kind of like... Um, takes itself so unseriously to the point of just depicting something really uninteresting. You know what I mean? He's mm. depicting something really interesting and serious, but not being serious about it. <laughs> yes, he does manage that. Um, uh, yeah. I, 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 another thing is that the Discord, like the, I'll see the, this is very different from the later ones in not really having any kind of a plot. Like it's just, you know, uh, Kind of you're flying along, but uh, you know, with a seat of your pants, and mm-hmm. they're just Brinsman and Tufar getting into various misadventures and exploring a lot of disc world as they do so. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's funny in this that they kind of explore more of the disc world that you'll see in a lot of other books, like yeah, you know, absolutely. there are places like Kroll that again that never come up, but yeah. just in general, you'll have like City Watch ones that are just solely limited to Ankh-Morpork Park which ones are solely limited to Lankara. Uh, and in the first one, he's kind of like doing a round-the-world tour. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's a very different Discworld, too. Like, there's... Uh, like, there's so... Magic is so much emphasised, so much more in this. You know, we get constant descriptions of, like, how, how the flow of life works because it's so slow. These these whole, like, swathes of land that are... Uh, that, like, was a high magical energy feels, like where the Werenberg oh, is because yes. of the, the Mage Wars, that, you know, everything just goes absolutely bonkers and a lot of physics stuff applying um, there and uh, the wizards are you know they're I suppose they're seen a little less directly here than they are in uh, 
Life Fantastic or Sorcery, but even when they're mentioned, much more formidable than, um, you know, than they would be, like, the kind of, like, bunch of old duffers that, like, uh, lovable old duffers now, but, like, <laughs> that, uh, that show up in later books. And even, even like, Hank Morpork is said to have, like, a magical quarter where they're like, you know, when the, the fire's breaking out, there's like sparks growing up from the magical quarter. Oh, yeah. Whereas you feel like by, you know, by the time of, say, uh, Unseen Academicals, if not earlier, if there's a fire going off, like the Dean and Rid Cully and the senior wrangler will just be sort of like panicking or blustering about it. They won't be like sending off magic. And so, you know, there's so much more magic or so much uh, more active. Um, I suppose it's, it's like, it's it's much more... Um, sorcery done, done sword and sword and sorcery done just sort of you know almost steampunky type fantasy that it gets to later uh, like a lot of magic later is really technological based like you've got stuff like hex or I mean oh, in this yeah. you have the um, the picture box and then you have like later riffs on that like Vimes is personal organizer and uh, you know the, the the way they make their films in moving pictures mm-hmm. um, and they're magic like it's demons in them but it's kind of like like demon punk like just you know <laughs> ma- ma- magitech you know whereas here it's it's uh... demon punk <laughs> I feel like that could be a genre in itself if it's not already I, feel like I hope it is I hope it is me too um, yeah whereas here it's just like straight up magic and I kind of wish um, like, I, I, I kind of wish we, uh, we we had seen a little more of that mm. um, like it, it's probably I, I can kind of see why he went away from it because it, you know when you have magic being such a big player and like the wizards being such a big player it, it would sort of mean you'd have to like have it impinge on almost any plot you do um, but I sort of wish like, like places like the high magical energy fields like I feel like I could have done with seeing another one of those way down the line you know when he got to know the discord better saying like hey what if one of those was you know whatever like not so far from Lunker or what if one of, what if there was a high magical energy field that you know Vimes had to investigate a crime in or something like that you know yeah, um, yeah like there, there's sort of a lot of real uh, like much more magical much wilder concepts here that are that are introduced that he kind of um, he leaves by the wayside as Discworld gets more well defined mm-hmm. that makes sense like I can see why he done it but I, but I sort of wish you know like the, well, we had a seen a little more of them I think the, the the difference the difference is summed up in that this Ankh Park has horror pits. Later Ankh Park has seamstress's guilt. Yes, you know, like this is a real like a much more kind of hive of scum and villainy fantasy city and just like a general like wild like fantasy world where you know full of like swathes of things that are kind of uh, that just aren't in any way civilized. Like you know, um, like later one of his I think one of his big strengths will be like marrying the mundane to the magic. So you'll get, like, the ins and the outs of, like, how vampires function as a society, or how dwarves function, whereas here it's just like, you know, you don't have to think about that. It's just like, oh, it's magic, it's just this crazy thing, rinse with the two flower running into. That's uh, true. Yeah. But, I mean, I do like the way they've done it here, and mm-hmm. the way maybe they don't rely on magic too much later, even even with the witches. They do try and downplay how magic magic really is. There's the trope of, oh, a wizard did it. Yeah. for explaining away anything in fantasy and the brilliant joke here is that there's one wizard and he can't do anything <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like they're really I mean that would be such a sword and sorcery thing and mm-hmm. he has the exact opposite which is a great touch and then he has been whichever one of the witches novels has Granny Weatherwax sitting by the fire reading tea leaves 
and she knows that somebody is walking up the pathway and she knows who it is. I forget who it is, just somebody looking for a cure. <laughs> <laughs> and she um, she knows who it is and it just, as a throwaway line says, that she knew that somebody was approaching. And, you know, she could tell that just by looking at the window. I mean, the fact that she was looking into the fireplace at the time had nothing to do with it. She could have just been looking out the window. <laughs> for, for how you know, mundane magic can be. Yeah, yeah. And the everyday uses of magic and just not the grand scale of things. Mm-hmm. It might be nice to have had it in one or two books, yeah, but I do love the way he uses magic as well. In yeah. that other, almost opposite way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, it's a great turn. I think that's sort of a... Uh, we've seen it like the one wizard that can't do anything I love I love how Rincewind there's occasional allusions to him like believing there should be something better than magic and he talks about harnessing the lightning and things like that <laughs> that's um, one of my favourite you know and, and it's the sort of thing like like you're, you're it, 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 oh, oh, I think it works in two levels because um, on the one level it works like um like they're in this from our vantage point a pre-modern society so you think of anyone who's thinking along those lines as a really progressive thinker like you know, uh, like uh, Benjamin Franklin of his age, yeah. but in the disc world, that just doesn't fly. Like the demon said to him, "No, but the gods control the lightning," and that's true in this world. It's like <laughs> oh, when they make all the jokes about like atheists getting thunderbolts thrown at them. It's yeah. it's like you know, this is a world where where magic is the is the physical law. You know, and kind mm-hmm. of um, wishing, uh, like wishing for that kind of stuff in this world particularly in this point in the series, mm-hmm. is absurd as, you know, you or I sitting around being like, oh, I wish I, I just didn't pay my electricity bill and, like, magic would do it instead, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, later, you, you get a lot of modernizing stuff, particularly the the City Watch ones and the Mice Fawn Lipwick ones mm. are all about uh, the Discworld slowly modernizing. But I said, like, here, it's very much it's sword and sorcery. It's, like, magic completely to the fore. Like, very, like, you know, very much the sort of sandbox like Dungeons and Dragons fantasy world mm-hmm. so like the idea of like oh, this goon looking for electricity that doesn't belong in this world you know you're <laughs> well, you're barking up the wrong tree completely yeah. you know um, but the demon has that one great line after that which is my favourite line of the entire thing and it's just something like yeah but I was thinking about it and how would you get lightning to pull a cart <laughs> completely misses the point of what Rinswood could possibly be saying functionally what would lightning do <laughs> That's brilliant. So good. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, what are they saying here? But like, yeah, the his disc world changing a lot. Um. Is is there any like like one um, one kind of one off event or place or character in Color of Magic? Um. Or I suppose we could throw Life Fantastic into this as well because there's sort of um that you wish had a record later. Um. Well, I could have stood to hear a little bit more about the worm, the upside-down mountain, because oh, yeah. that was just such an incredible visual. But on the other hand, I I kind of... Um, I loved how it showed all of the different regions, but at the same time, it might have been a mistake to start off so early in Ankhmore Pork, because mm-hmm. for the entire book, I was just waiting for it to go back there. And there was all these amazing, you know, wonderful places, these different lands that you'd never encountered before, and upside-down mountains and imaginary dragons. And I just wanted to go back to Ankhmore Park and have another brawl yeah. so. well you'll, you'll, you'll get your wish <laughs> <laughs> because we see a lot of uh, a lot of Ankhmore Park down the line yeah um, how about you were you thinking of anything in particular um, I, I would have liked Bel Shumharat to, to, to show up again yeah. although I suppose like in some way they you know they have things from the Dungeon Dimensions playing a role occasionally but um, 
uh, yeah, I just uh, I, I I like that uh, that they get, like he does a really effective job with the sending away bit of building up this real sense of dread and anticipation for Belshomrat. You know, with like the the gods, even the lady flinches when she sees the picture of him, and you know um, that line. Uh, you are just going to die. Your friend is going to meet Bashumrat, mm-hmm. um, and 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 that sense of dread as well around that, like he's summoned by doing something as mundane as saying eight. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, but all the while having it being really funny as well. Like I just love how Two Flower can't get, like you know, is is just the only one immune. You have you have Rincewind, you have the the dryad, you have the gods themselves, kind of. Um, like absolutely terrified at this Balshumrat and uh, Two Flowers like oh we just we find this Balshumrat person and he let us out and he's like no I can't find him and he says oh we don't have to get involved <laughs> we'll just explain the situation yeah. to I absolutely love Two Flower actually as a point of view character yeah I mean how amazing is it to have the first book in this amazing wide spanning fantasy series that's going to span witches and wizards and guards and insane technology and have it be a tourist in a Hawaiian shirt mm-hmm. with a camera and mm-hmm. a watch. Like, he introduces a regular person to us yeah. into the disc world in the first book. And everybody thinks he's absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. The regular person that's something that anybody can relate to, the guy who works in an office and thinks, oh, yeah, dragons would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's like, who is this lunatic? He's going to get us all killed. <laughs> It's just, he's an idiot. We want to get rid of him. Like, it's just, it's brilliant for them to introduce that character. Yeah. And have him be a punchline constantly and just a walking risk. Yeah. And I, I think he's he's a lovely balance between, like, if, you know, we look at, like, particularly Colour Magic Life Fantastic of just sending up all different fantasy tropes in general. Mm-hmm. I feel like Two Flowers is a lovely balance between two types of, like, I don't think he's a direct send up of this, but in, in my head, he's sort of a. Uh, contrasts favorably with on the one hand you've got like when you, you see a lot of writers trying to write like really uh you know gritty heroes who are full of angst and mm-hmm. they're going through these like you know incredible magical worlds but just like sour the whole way uh you know because their their parents were dead or like their you know their wife was raped and eaten by a dragon or something you know and like all oh, oh, this they're so there's determined and two flowers is full of wonder you know and i kind of like just see sees all this stuff is just you know like uh like a team park and on the other hand as well like he sort of uh i feel like he also kind of like uh contrasts nicely with a lot of uh, a lot of epic fantasy would be told from the point of view of a kind of like outsider like a a farm boy kind of making his way in the world you know like seeing a lot for the first time which is a handy device because it means he or she is singing alongside the reader like like uh you know harry potter or a randall thor in the wheel of time or even like luke skywalker and Star Wars, they're all coming from these kind of very um, sh- uh, somewhat sheltered backgrounds, you know, they're being introduced to this magical world as we are and, you know, they're full of wonder and rest and it's it's a very handy way to read it but you occasionally get the sense that you're like, if we were getting this book from someone else's point of view, from, you know um, like it, from, from Dumbledore's or from Obi-Wan's you know, or from like, yeah, for love from Warren or Land in Wheel of Time to be so exasperated with these people, you know, kind of like just <laughs> expressing wonder and like standing there slack jawed and asking all these questions about these things they have long since learned to take for granted. And yeah. Two Flower is sort of like that, like, you know, uh, you understand his wonder, but you also empathize with Rincewind's frustration when he's just 
you know, can't recognize the danger of certain situations or is just, you know, like is kind of expressing such joy over something Rincewind has long since learned to take for granted. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. This, wow, barbarians, dragons, get over it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and on the subject of barbarians, mm-hmm. I think another, another uh, seed that he plants as a gardener is, is the barbarians that are like, you know, he uh, revisits them later with Cohen and then with, expands it to the Silver Horde in interesting times. Mm-hmm. And the um, and, uh, last hero. Um, and it's funny that with the the last hero, like, certainly feels like a real throwback to the early Discworld stuff. But the, the theme that he brings up in that, that sort of immortality and, you know, heroes kind of wondering, like, what, what sort of legacy are you really going to leave and what's it all for? Comes up in this when you've got Run being convinced to work with Rincewind and Twofer because they have the picture box. Right. And, uh, you know, and it immortalizes them. And, uh, like, it's like, oh, that happens still us. No more pictures of you. And he's so... He, he's so in love with this idea of some commemoration to his achievements. Um, but I do think it's interesting that in in the world of this world, where as we discussed before, where magic is so apparent, where the gods are known to the point that, like, you know, being an atheist is an actual hazard that will get, like, thunderbolts thrown at you, yeah. that heroes are so set on kind of immortalizing themselves in life in the way that heroes are in other works and kind of in, in real life um you know like like uh, i sort of feel like oh well, they they know in this world they know they're going to go to some kind of valhalla and they don't know in the way they don't you know uh they don't even know in the way that like i suppose a, a christian today would know that they're going to heaven or you know like like a, or, or a muslim or a hindu or anything like like they have this real <laughs> they probably have actual evidence of it you know so uh, like it feels like there wouldn't be the same honest on you to kind of do deeds in life that would see you immortalized in the same way that um you know that that heroes in real life and other books would have although admittedly it's somewhat less so in the color of magic because you do have that bit at the end when rincewind is speaking to scrofula and Scrofula lets slip about reincarnation, and Rincewind's like, <laughs> aha! You know, and then you, then you, you kind of realise in the color of magic, you're kind of left to infer uh, from that that there's some sort of uncertainty about what happens after you die, you know, and, and Scrofula lets slip. But whereas in, in later books, it seems... I know, it's it's fast and loose with the uncertainty. Like, you, you see scenes with... Um, with death with people where he's explaining to them what well you know what happens now and it's usually what they believe will happen but they don't really know for certain what they believe will happen yeah. until it happens but at the same time you have got evidence of gods and stuff and i don't know i feel like like there's more evidence of an afterlife in this world than there certainly than there is in our world and it's funny that he can still bring up a lot of uh a lot of issues of mortality and immortality and things like that in a world where the afterlife is almost like something to be taken for granted. Well, that's true, but I mean, I completely agree with you on the gods' evidence. And yes, the afterlife is pretty certain. <laughs> and there's that great throwaway joke in one of the later books of uh, you know somebody who thinks they can um, you know cheat the system by worshiping a bunch of gods, <laughs> yeah. and he wakes up in a, st- in a circle after he dies, being surrounded by gods. Going, well, we'll show you what we do, Mister Clever Dick, right here. <laughs> But the afterlife in Discworld has always seemed pretty uncertain to me because it's always so vague and it never shows you what happens next. Um, and I seem to remember somebody being claimed by death and just sitting there 
on a rock and being like, I'll just I'll just wait. I can't remember which book it happens. So it's uh, it's Vorbus and Small Gods because you won't you won't cross the desert. Oh, I think because I think he's like he's he's worried about what he'll what he'll meet on the other side. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So there's somebody that just doesn't want to encounter what they think the afterlife actually is. So it's just them sitting there. And mm-hmm. you so rarely see what happens next. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. I suppose. It just, uh, it took me as interesting because I said, like, later, Last Hero, and to a lesser extent, interesting times, really go heavily into the, you know, the legacy of these heroes and kind of why they're doing it. And it's it's played off here with Ron and the, his fascination with the picture box. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it, it, like, it, you know, it's kind of, uh, I know, I suppose, wondering how how well it gels with, with the, uh, uh, with, it's something like, I can definitely relate to what he's, um, what he's getting at with it. And he makes some really interesting points, but I was kind of wondering how well it gels with the actual world he depicts. But I, I think you're right. I think, I think there is for all the kind of gods popping up here, there and everywhere. There is like, yeah, the afterworlds, uh, the afterlife is that vague enough that there will be that degree of uncertainty. And I suppose I, I can't trick myself here, but when I say gods popping up here, there and everywhere, I'm conscious that, you know, we're getting from the main character's point of view, who are necessarily people that crazier and more interesting things happen than most of the people on the disc world. So, That's you know, not everyone is running into the lady or fate or, you know, on kind a of a... Uh, yeah, <laughs> or whatever, getting their entire country trapped in, uh, trapped in a sort of weird um, God-fills limbo like, like they do in pyramids, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are relatively isolated examples, you know, in the, in the mundane day-to-day realities of people who live on the disc world. That's true, but I mean, Hogfather's probably going to surprise a lot of people then when yeah. gods suddenly start popping into existence just because you think of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people are going to freak out about that. We'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. I'm jumping mm-hmm. ahead, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I suppose uh, this this is always singled out as a book that um, people say that it shouldn't be, you know, like... Um, you know, you, if you're introducing someone to Discworld, you shouldn't start with Color of Magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just something, I don't know, so I know, I find it interesting that I've I've often encountered resistance to that from people who know of Terry Pratchett and kind of want to get into it and ask me about it. And I, 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 um, I, I might have changed having having reread. I might have changed my opinion, but we'll get to that. But up until now, anyway, I would have I would have told them, oh well, don't don't start with Color of Magic. It's it's atypical to a lot of the rest of what he goes on with um, or what he, what he will go on to write about and a lot of people seem very uh, you know reluctant to do this they don't like the idea of not starting on the first one yeah. even when you explain how um, self, self-contained self most of the books are mm-hmm. um, and I, I feel I was, I was talking to um, uh, Bobby Lowe Bobby being for any listeners who aren't our family or friends a mutual <laughs> friend and colleague of ours and he was asking me about actually he was asking me about Doctor Who and getting started on it. And he oh, yeah. said how um like, oh you know I, I, I uh, it's it looks good, but I wouldn't want to work through like fifty years of uh, of back catalog. And I said, oh well, you don't have to really. And he was really you know reluctant. And I said I I, I kind of hit me down that I think this this tendency this sort of I suppose anal retentiveness of people to progress in a really chronological fashion mm-hmm. is born out of the internet. I feel. Where, like, when you get into something, you know, when you kind of catch something either through hearing your friends talk about it or, you know, maybe if it's a TV program or something, you might catch one episode until you can instantly go to Wikipedia and look up and you will get this 
full list of like you know oh, this is book one and you know or this is you know the, the first episode it began here um and all of them are technically available to you and that you can you know get them on look wherever buy them online or you know download them from somewhere so you know theoretically you can you can start from the start whereas like prior to that you would stumble on things much more through chance you know mm-hmm. um like there are so many book series I loved as a kid that I read the second one first, or what you know the third one first because I just liked the look of it uh, and dive right in and didn't you know didn't really think anything of uh, of doing that. Um, whereas I feel like now because it's it's available to people, they feel like they've got to you know they've got to start uh, right from the start and as well kind of I suppose internet um, giving us much greater access to other fan communities you're constantly running into people who have you know have this really comprehensive knowledge and you're sort of weighing yourself up against them you know and um, wanting to get through it in that way that uh, yeah I, I just feel it's an interesting development and it's interesting particularly with regard to Discworld which is something where you can really pick it up at almost any point and get into it and just progress in in any fashion you know even you know you could you could read feet of clay and then read guards guards and it wouldn't you know wouldn't matter all that much like even though they're about the same characters but you know in non-chronological order um yeah like it's interesting that people now have this have this reluctance to uh to explore in that way yeah um although the Discworld is a very atypical example as well because the Discworld is one of the few series where you can just jump in yeah anywhere at all without missing anything I mean, I absolutely did the same thing when I was younger. I'd pick up a book, then find out it was book five of ten, and go, oh, mm-hmm. oh well, I'll read six and seven, then if I find two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, when I when I used to work at a bookshop, I used to, I, I would say, I would be reluctant to, you know, with parents looking for a particular uh, series or, like, asking for recommendations for a kid, and I might find something and I'd say, oh, we don't have the first book. And, like, I would stress to them, I was like, oh, I've done this all the time when I was a kid, you know, like, if they, if they like it, they'll find they'll track down the first one exactly. um, and yeah you're right Discworld is somewhat atypical in that like there's not kind of like an overarching plot through it but I feel like even for stuff with overarching plots um, oh, it's it's can. easier than people than people like to believe to, to drop in in the middle you know mm. um, you know and it doesn't it gives you a different experience of that particular text that series it doesn't give you like a wrong experience or you know a, yeah. a bad experience of it um but uh, yeah, I, I I mean I I really enjoyed Color of Magic rereading it, and uh, one thing like I was struck by is just this sounds like a, a simple thing, but how readable it was. In that I said, uh, like I, I flew through it in a couple of days, mm-hmm. um, and you know just like found it really funny and really engaging. And just uh, uh, went on about the wildness earlier, but it's just so full of ideas as to kind of keep you uh, keep you hanging on throughout it. So you know, I I mean, I I don't know was were anyone to walk in now who hadn't uh, read Discworld before would I I recommended them starting with it. But I would definitely you know, if someone if I were to get into that conversation again where someone were to insist with starting with the first one, I wouldn't try as hard to dissuade them because I think I don't I certainly don't think this would scare anyone off Discworld. You know, I no. Um, Pratchett described actually I found him describing it as a he describes Discworld as a tall building that he started out building with very flimsy materials. Like, so <laughs> he basically says he wrote the color of magic for the jokes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, sense, uh, like I, I suppose it's, it's a lot less, uh, 
um, thoughtful or complex than some of the later ones. Yeah. And it's 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 world is very much a kind of you know like a, a has a kind of making it up as you go along feel. Like you talked earlier about how you wish you they could have returned to Angmore Park and they never really return anywhere. You know, well within the color of magic, they just kind of get point A to point B to point C um, mm-hmm. as the as the plot progresses. But um, so made that doesn't make for like the best example of writing in the disc world or of uh, you know um, I suppose of of its ability to move people or even its ability to kind of um, probe at like you know your imagination with crazy concepts. But it does make for something really readable and really fun. Yeah, um, and it really made me laugh out loud a bunch of times. On planes and on trains where I felt yeah. very conspicuous laughing out loud because it's so rare that it actually happens just from reading a book on your own. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very funny. Uh, actually, I made a note of some of, some of my favourite, like some of the some of the similes in this are just, you know, just uh, brilliant. <laughs> uh, sort of, there's one about um, the, the assassins where it says being Emor's right-hand man was like being gently flogged to death with scented bootlaces, um, <laughs> which is like hilarious and so descriptive and... Uh, a flicker of doubt passed over his Zlorf's face like the last shaft of sunlight over a badly ploughed field. <laughs> Run's head looking like a tomato on a coffin. Uh, and Crane being just the sort of black that is less a colour than a graveyard of colours. Um, like there's just so many examples of really lovely writing that are kind of laugh out loud funny or just like wonderful flourishes that, um, yeah, kind of mightn't, you know, mightn't be about anything more on literally describing that thing you know literal description but doing it in such a way that it's just so enjoyable and so colourful um, like The Colour of Magic is a title I feel that would have really attracted me you know like it just uh, like as, as a kid and as a teenager it sounds so you know like just so big and fascinating and kind of promises so much and um, like obviously you know you have Octi- Oct- Octarine yeah. um, in it which is the literal colour of magic which is a cool concept but uh, but the book itself I feel is just such a colourful book if you know what I mean like there's just so many different settings and so many of those those like rhetorical flourishes he has of describing things that you know um, putting a colour to magic actually is such a practical thing to do yeah to take this thing to take magic, which is just this, you know, invisible force you'd never see. It. It's not a visual thing. It's, it's It would never be a visual thing, except for it's greenish, yellowish, purple, apparently, mm-hmm. according to Pratchett. He, he does this amazing thing of making real things that are usually just concepts. Yeah. He does yeah. that so well. Uh, and that greenish, yellowish, purple is another, like, lovely marriage of, you know, on the one hand, he's describing something awe-inspiring, like this, you know. Ace, uh, like this a color of on the spectrum and mm-hmm. this color of like magic and wonder itself on the other hand it's like this really mundane vague like you know like deliberately crappy description <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't even sound pretty no no it doesn't actually no. <laughs> if you try and picture it it's just yeah I'm trying to think um, I'd be curious if if anyone um, listening, any any of any of the millions of listeners, we will undoubtedly uh, kind of enrapture when oh, we sure. when we first put this online. Mm-hmm. Can find anything in real life that they can think like is vaguely coloured, like iron, <laughs> <laughs> like a greenish, yellowish, purple. <laughs> I'd like that. Me too. I don't yeah. think I've ever encountered anything in real life that colour. Yeah. I'd love to see or hear something like that. Uh, it would be it would be good. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, I think I think uh, the only people I'd um, I would like dissuade from starting with this is if I was trying to get a non-fantasy fan, like no people who didn't like fantasy at all into Discworld. Yeah, I I wouldn't tell them to start with this because it's so. Um, so bonkers that it would probably plays up to like if they don't like fantasy already this is probably like you know what they think of or what they don't like in it of just all this crazy stuff and nothing to root it down you know and um that's true actually yeah like you know like kind of no no plot just uh if you like fantasy oh that's great but you know if you don't i i I've kind of i suppose i'd recommend starting with something more um more plot heavy yeah, uh, I recommended Snuff to somebody recently as a starting point. Really? Yeah, based on their personality, though. Um, okay. One of the per- people that I work with, uh, she was reading The Colour of Magic, and it wasn't that she'd asked me for a suggestion. She mm-hmm. just came in one day and she told me she'd started reading The Colour of Magic, and I was like, oh, okay, okay, let me know what you think of it, because I hadn't pegged her as a fantasy reader yeah. as such. And then she didn't love The Colour of Magic, didn't get into it. I'm not sure she actually finished it in the end. But then we went to the library recently and I saw Snuff, and I thought... Actually, Snuff is grounded enough in real life, character heavy enough. It has that, you know, rights element mm-hmm. that Pratchett gets fond of a bit later on. Mm-hmm. And personality-wise, I think that actually suits her. I think recommending Pratchett to people based on their personality is actually a good way to go because there's so much to pick from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can actually do that based on not the quality of the book, but I think you'd probably like this particular element of this mm-hmm. particular mm-hmm. <laughs> subsection of Pratchett novels. Yeah. Um you said the the rights element and obviously uh like his um his work will get uh, i suppose more well overtly uh, you know ideological mm-hmm. um as, as it goes on i mean i suppose even even like uh by by equal rights you know the third one you've got a definite sort of a like a moral or a kind of you know a real like weighty team being explored in terms of gender issues and patriarchal institutions and so on um and you know, this is it isn't really present in the color magic. Color magic, you know, it doesn't have a plot. Does it doesn't really have any themes. Just like this, like kind of like fantasy roller coaster. But one thing I noticed it did have, and it's a thing that recurs in his work, but it's here right from the start. Is that like it sort of really emphasizes um, celebrating the imagination for itself. Yeah. Like like the Wernberg, uh, Wernberg, Wernberg oh, is yes. the most obvious. Where it's literally like their power comes from having the you know an imagination good enough to conjure these dragons into life mm-hmm. and that like you know uh if if your imagination isn't good i think rincewind attempts to do it at one point and he can't really and yeah your man Grecia comments about how his uh, his children can't do it as well as he had because they don't really have an imagination and you know we see them they're just this bunch of sort of power hungry schemers who you know don't think very much beyond just uh killing and seizing power for themselves so it makes sense whereas Twoflower who's so full of just wonder and enthusiasm can conjure this amazing dragon yeah um, yeah and it's uh, it's it's sort of I, I think it's it's sprinkled it's sprinkled throughout like yeah that um, just imagination as a thing to celebrate in and of itself mm-hmm. which I suppose like the fantasy genre overall is a sort of celebration of the uh, the you know of the human imagination mm-hmm. and the color of magic is essentially like a celebration or a, a parody come celebration of fantasy so it's it's i think it's nice that like if there is any overarching message feels really trite but um you know if, if there is any big big team or i suppose point he wants to get across it in in this um or or that feels like it's getting across 
is that you know imagination's this wonderful thing that I suppose we we sort of take for granted or see as something childish or frivolous mm-hmm. um and it is childish or frivolous, but it's also great like you know he manages to do that kind of uh, self deprecating celebration of it mm-hmm. yeah. um, oh uh, yeah, I suppose one thing to to touch on as well is probably uh uttered on uttered on the the um patrician the most glaring element of color magic in terms of how it sits uncomfortably with the way this world is depicted later on is death who's yes. much more antagonistic <laughs> and petty i suppose and uh like he, he just has it in for insulin rather than a sort of philosophical um Kid you know yeah yeah <laughs> Like he's later summed up as like he's not cruel. He's just very, very good at his job. Yes. Um, Whereas this death is actually mean. yeah, yeah, mean spirited, and he targets people, mm-hmm. and he almost out and out attempts to murder Rinswin. Yeah. Well, in terms of like, <laughs> you're meant to be in whichever area this evening, and you're clearly not going to get there now. I can lend you a really fast horse <laughs> yeah. and meet you there. Like he's trying to get Rinswin into locations where he can kill him, mm-hmm. and then just let go of the branch. Be fine. Mm-hmm. luring the wizard to his death yeah. and he just uh, I think he like kills mayflies in frustration at some point yeah so and it's just not the same he's yeah saying. yeah <laughs> um, like uh, how, how did you how did you react to that I suppose rereading Colour of Magic having like you know been through the gamut of the Discworld and uh, you know seeing death in so many other like you know being expanded so much as a character like here seeing... no, it's funny actually um, I had a slightly different perception of it before this Mm-hmm. So what I had thought was that death is just clearly going to develop really well over time. Yeah. But I can't actually think of any book where they develop death in such a way. So actually, I think it's just that you're right that uh, the color of magic is more of an anomaly from the rest of the series mm-hmm. that it doesn't blend in so well. I thought that death was just going to change and and we were going to get a <laughs> character development story about death where he you know learns yeah. to love people and get along and you know develops his love for kittens. Mm-hmm. But no, I think I think yeah, you're right from now. Mortis, yeah. Um, he's kind of like a, you know, a fully formed, uh, like a, like a character rather than, yeah, we don't, but although admittedly at the, at the end of, um, you kind of get a hint of it at the end of the color of magic when he's talking to fate and fate kind of asks him, like, I thought you really want to get Rincewind. And he, he says, Oh, well, you know, like everyone dies eventually. I'm not going to, I'm not going to chase him for it. I'm, I'm not, uh. I should have like bookmarked the passage, but you know he, he sort of gets a lot more philosophical and sanguine about his job, and a lot less sadistic. Um, so I suppose that's kind of uh, like you know we don't get a whole book about it, but we at least get that as you know an indication of how it will be depicted as it goes on. That's um, as I said again, like I, I doubt you know it's we can only speculate as to where whether Pratchett like uh done that because he said oh you know i'll, I'll depict that in this different light as, as i go on i i doubt he he had anything quite as conscious as that but it's interesting that it already takes that that little turn after for most of the book as you said being such an anomaly um i can't remember how he's depicted in the life fantastic it's been a very very long time since i've read that and i, I can't remember whether he's you know the death, he more or less the death we know for the rest of the books, or whether there's sort of shadows of, of of this kind of uh, like like petty sadist. Mm-hmm. Um, I did hear uh, <laughs> an interesting uh, fan theory that the reason he's like this is because 
we'll see at the very end we see um we see that he's hired an apprentice in scrofula um <laughs> and like he farms some of his work out to i don't know maybe you know kind of like herpes and <laughs> kind of like like um syphilis are are uh-huh. out at other places of the disc hunting down people too mm-hmm. uh and that, um, because like as we, as we learn as we go on, that is a very impressionable character. Like you know, he gets so much of how he is of humans. Like how his house is plumbing, and he is, but he has no need of it. But he just feels houses should because of what he's seen. So that in this case, he's sort of like um, scrofulous personality is kind of impressing itself onto death. Like the scrofulous seems like a like a bit of a petty job sort at the end. You know when you know when Rincewind's like, this is my life. I'm not going to die, and he's like, oh. But you've got to do it because you know this is my big break. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he's uh yeah, he's sort of like a just a mean, like you know, puny, petty little guy. And that the theory was that because Death was hanging around with him, he was sort of you know picking up on his personality. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is obviously the only book where we see well, or Morty takes on an apprentice, and later books he will uh, kind of Susan will fill in for him. But we never get this this idea other than the Death of Rats that you know there are parts of his job that he doesn't attend to um but but it does i think it's it's sort of consistent with in later books he he alludes to taking the sh- he would try that for a period he would try to take the shape of whatever the person who died expected to see him as like he would appear as like you know a he like he, yeah, and he kind of goes mentions o- other ways death has been depicted in like uh in culture you know in human culture at the years like a I think a scarab beetle and like you know other uh, dragon and figures like that, and oh, then he yeah. just decided to stick with the the um, skull and uh, skull skied and cloak um, routine. Yeah. But so I, you know, that is somewhat consistent with the idea that at certain periods he's just decided to experiment a bit, and mm-hmm. in this particular period he was he was like taking on these apprentices and kind of outsourcing his work. Um, so yeah, it's it's really anomalous with the rest of the Discworld series, but at the same time, it's sort of you know there's there's a reason for it there if you if you dig hard enough if you kind of indulge in a fan wankery you know you'll, <laughs> you'll find a reason for it. That's true. Mm-hmm. Although funnily enough, in this one they do mention a, a few times like they they're either Terry Pratchett really wanted to reinforce the point or it was because of his early days, but he says several times that death comes to collect wizards. Like Rincewind was yeah, definitely a wizard yeah. because Death was going to pick him up personally, but then you have the contradictory Reaper Man, where he, you know, he uses scythe mm-hmm. one, one blade of grass at a time, and mm-hmm. it's real symbolic for for how he does his job, for how he functions, for how he individually, you know, picks up mm-hmm. everybody. That could just be another anomaly. Yeah. Or it might well, be that he develops a new strategy. If if we are to, to indulge in another bit of fan linkery, bend our bend the story over backwards, fit it in. <laughs> it could just be like you know wizarding arrogance, like they, uh, because I mean we get at the end that they they don't know what comes after when when Rincewind sort of uh, is shocked when Scrofula lets slip about reincarnation. Uh-huh. Uh, so they, you know they could just kind of assume this, <laughs> like it mentions about how they can see death, mm-hmm. but we later learn. Uh, you know, we, we, the impression we get of wizards, like chiefly through Unseen University, is that they're a very closed, institutionalized lot. You know, they spend virtually all their time in Unseen University, interact chiefly with other wizards. Mm-hmm. So, what most of the time, uh, like when they would, you know, they would see death 
because they would see him around like dying colleagues like dying other wizards yeah and they presume oh he only comes for wizards and then the brief times they would be out in the wider world they wouldn't see him on a Sunday off chance they happen to be there when someone's killed like you know just has a fall on the street or a heart attack or something That's so true. yeah maybe it kind of like you know the fact that they would see him around unseen university when the, the likes of Windlepoons or well in fact they don't see him when Windlepoons is croaking but you know his <laughs> ilk just old wizards getting old and dying means gives them the impression that like oh yeah he only he only shows up for us and you know they're definitely a pretty self-important lot like yeah that's very very feasible that could actually be it yeah (laughs) institutionalized wizard arrogance Mm -hmm. yeah i think that explains it yeah absolutely um um yeah so i did you have anything else to to say So, oh, although since we were talking about sword and sorcery earlier, mm-hmm. and then since we talked about demon punk earlier, mm-hmm. I forgot to mention they <laughs> they have a ship of space. Oh yeah, yeah. How weird is it that he veers outside of fantasy? That he spends that the entire book is spent lampooning fantasy here in sword and sorcery. Yeah, <laughs> and then it becomes like when voyage to Saloon at the end. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> it's turning into a Victorian steampunk novel. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I thought that it, yeah, that it completely passed me by. That, yeah, those seeds of steampunk are there, yeah. there from from very from very early on. Um, yeah, I, I suppose uh, the last thing to say is that what we plan to do as we as we go on is build up a uh, like a, a ranking, a list of our favourite uh, Discworld novels. Um, list making is a frivolous and silly and utterly subjective exercise, but it's also really fun, so we're going to do it anyway. Um, it's probably, the idea is probably not unique, but uh, for um, full disclosure, I'm taking it off a wonderful Simpsons podcast called The Simpsons Show, where the two hosts there have given themselves the much more titanic task of working their way through all of The Simpsons and building up the list as they go on. Uh, I think they're up to uh season four at the moment um yeah so it's 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 kind of funny there's like yeah episodes from season one that are you know right down the bottom and to, to kind of allude to the fact that they're gonna have to go a long time to displace them from the bottom of the list because like it stays really good for another couple of seasons and you know it's gonna be a while yeah <sighs> yeah so uh i i I'd suggest to you i think it'd be fun to do that with the discworld once as we go on yep. we haven't reached an idea of what we're going to do if we disagree <laughs> i mean like my my faith in our friendship and in our powers of reasoning says that we will be able to kind of work out a compromise of sorts mm-hmm. but uh I, I don't know i suppose dice right from from reading about the um the gods in this we we, we could uh we really disagree. We get like the deal break, the uh, the <laughs> waves. Yeah, you know, deciding it could could be to throw dice. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I explained that just as a regular feature to show as we go on. But obviously now it's not all irrelevant because Color Magic is number one, being the only one we've read so far yeah. in this uh, reread series. Um, right. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. I haven't set up any of our social media or website yet, so I don't know to direct you to that. But if you're listening to this, you're already hearing it from one of those. So thanks, and we'll be back with The Life Fantastic. Thank you.